You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hi, this is Tim from The Good GP. I'm excited to announce that we're recording a live show at the GP22 conference in Melbourne on Friday, 25th of November. If you're attending GP22, please come down and be part of a fun and interactive session. We'd also like to invite any attendees who want to meet the team and have a chat about the podcast to catch up at the Conference Exhibition Centre on Saturday, 26th of November during the lunch break. We'll provide more details of the location during the live podcast show on the Friday. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to The Good GP. I'm Sean Stevens, and today I'm interviewing Dr Penny Wood, who's a GP with an interest in transgender medicine, and Dr Sally Murray, who's a sexual health physician at Royal Perth Hospital. Welcome, Penny, and welcome, Sally. Hello. All righty, Penny, I might hand over to you first. Um, So you've got a strong interest in transgender medicine. Can you please tell us what sparked your interest and how transgender medicine differs from your other areas of general practice? Well, I guess back in 2015, I had my first uh, trans patient come to see me for care. Um, and it was not long after I'd moved up to Perth, where I was working rurally before. I was known in LGBT circles, so I guess I was someone to come to. So I figured I'd do some research and figure out what to do and offered them some treatment. Of course, so they spoke to their friends and their friends spoke to their friends and it all kind of snowballed from there. And at this stage, I've seen over 400 patients for gender-related care in some aspect. I've had to keep my books closed for some time as well because it was building up quite a lot, yeah. Um, And I guess most people come to see me saying their local GP, you know, was quite accepting of their their gender identity concerns, but they didn't know what to do. So to try and mitigate that, I've been working on educating other doctors and registrars and and how to spread the load. Yeah, gender care is not that much different from regular care. I mean, it's stuff that we're all quite familiar with as gender practitioners. so for feminising hormone treatment, it's very similar to postmenopausal HRT. And for testosterone treatment therapy, it's very similar to those that are getting um, testosterone for primary gonadal failure. I guess there is some differences around surgical management of patients uh, and post-surgical management, um, plus gynecological issues in, in trans men. Um, the other thing is there's sometimes some family acceptance issues and mental health issues associated with transitioning as well. So, you know, that's something you have to touch on quite frequently. Mm, yeah, look, uh, I can imagine that you would. What about you, Sally? So you're a sexual health specialist with an interest in transgender medicine. Can you please outline where you see the GP role and where you see the subspecialist role sitting in the medical management of gender transition? Yeah, sure. So... You know, like Penny, you know, I ended up working in this field because I had a you know, couple of patients that uh, were trans and I felt sort of uncomfortable and like I didn't know what I was doing and that I needed to know more. And so, you know, same thing, I saw a couple of patients and then all of a sudden found myself running a service. And and I think what stood out to me at that time was, you know, the, the sort of lack of providers we're based in Perth and and there was a real lack of providers in primary care and so that's where at that time there was a role for us because 
you know, there wasn't a lot of people doing it as such and there was, you know, long wait lists. But, you know, really, you know, like Penny, I'm a firm believer that this is sort of bread and butter primary care work. You, you guys work with these hormones all the time. You know, you already know what, you know, indications or concerns would be around, say, using estrogen or using an oral contraceptive pill in a, in, in a person. And so it's no different starting estrogen in a trans woman, really. In the main role for us at the moment in sort of our tertiary setting is um, offering testosterone prescriptions because PBS authority requirements require specialist input within the first 12 months of care. So, you know, in the longer term, my sincere hope is that's about all we do and perhaps help with the management of some of the more complex patients, you know, whether that's medically complex or, you know, there's just a lot going on in their social mental health world and they would be a better fit for a tertiary clinic rather than trying to manage all of that in primary care. Mm. Thanks, Sally. It's uh, very nice to hear that people working in tertiary setting uh, do have that opinion of general practice. So that's great. Um, So now a question for both of you. The medicine's only part of it. How do you provide the appropriate psychological support during gender transition? So for for adult patients, we really start with the assumption that the patient is really able to make their own choices and decisions, you know, and they can navigate their own path. Uh, My role as a a clinician and the role of other mental and allied health professionals is, is to act as someone that the patient can trust, to give them to advice and to help them through the process. So really psychological care is nice to have, but it's not a requirement. And I generally don't insist that people get assessment by by a psychological professional in order to make sure that they're able to get a diagnosis, so to speak. It's it's, it's basically something that someone self-diagnoses. I mean, very occasionally there's some, there's some major psychological disturbances or difficulty in comprehending information. And that does result in concerns about the ability to consent to treatment, but this is this is quite rare and unusual. I mean, out of the hundreds of trans patients I've seen, I can count on less than one hand the number of times I've had any major issues around, you know, ability to consent. So it's quite unusual. But, you know, like having said all that, with my experience working in this field, I generally do advise people to engage with a psychologist um, because transitioning is quite stressful you know there can be issues around disclosure to family members navigating romantic relationships and overall you're just dealing with the very fundamental ways in which people interact with you in the world when you're seen as one gender versus another it does help to have some advice for someone familiar with these things um, get their help if i can jump in there i completely agree with penny so again you know i'm not looking for a diagnosis i think um, adults are able to you know, form a reasonable idea of their gender identity. I mean, if someone's very early in kind of trying to think about that, then I might, you know, that they might want to explore that with a psychologist. But certainly in our, the context that I work in, we have long wait lists. So, you know, I'm, they've had plenty of time to think about it before we're able to see them. And I completely agree. You know, so for me, I absolutely routinely try and encourage patients to get support and experience support for their transition because there's massive changes and it's also really about and you can do this in a in your GP setting or you can get someone to help you with it but you know make sure there's really realistic expectations of how your transition is going to unfold so not just you know whether your breasts are going to grow and you know how your skin's going to change and that sort of stuff although obviously having realistic expectations around that is is helpful too but just especially the social aspects of transition because we know that 
um, transitions are most successful when you know people sort of have that upfront support for managing the, the social transitions, whether that's in their family or their workplace or whatever, because you know, as I say to my patients, not everyone's kind. So it's nice to have strategies for dealing with them moving forward rather than sort of being constantly surprised on the back foot as your transition sort of moves along. So, and then otherwise, you know, yes, there's the occasional complex patient that, you know, you feel like maybe they would benefit from, you know, psychiatry review, you know, maybe, I don't know, it's very um, infrequent, you know, but it's significant psychosis history or something like that. But um, or, uh, you know, as Penny mentioned, but there's sometimes if you're concerned about cognitive ability and, you know, capacity to consent. But I've been working in the field about the same time as Penny and I can't think of many of those patients. Mm. Oh, it's been about sort of two or three times, to be honest. It's, it's yeah. pretty unusual. Mm. Okay, that's really interesting because um, back when I started my career in general practice 20 years ago, it was almost compulsory before starting that um, people had to see a psychiatrist. Yeah, there's been some big shifts in that um, over time, uh, even in the time that we've been working in the field. Um, and the, you know, I think we're going to talk about resources down the line. But the new Australian guidelines really work around that informed consent model. And you know, as long as someone has spent that time sitting with the patient, making sure that they understand the risks and benefits, that they have realistic expectations of transition, and you know that they've got capacity for consent, then you know, that's really what you're looking for in an assessment and that doesn't need to be done by me. You know, don't, don't need a letter for that, you know, which is sort of the old terminology. I mean, I guess the problem with the letter for, for this kind of thing was it became an adversarial process where people were kind of, you know, seeing the, the healthcare professionals and the allied health as a means to an end rather than as yes, to support. With their process, you know, which quite contradictory to the one was quite contradictory to the others, you know, so, yeah. Okay, no, that's really interesting. Thank you. Now, finally, if we turn to supports for GPs, um, where can we access the best guidelines, consent forms, online forms, and you know, all that sort of practical stuff? First thing I would say is it's great to join OSPATH, which is the sort of um, organisation, the professional organisation in Australia. There's also you know the WPATH, which is the world one, but I think OSPATH's fantastic. They've got a list server you can post questions on. I learned a lot in my first years just watching other questions that came through from other providers and how people managed or thought about that. And so... What would you Google to find that? Oh, sorry, Auspath, A-U-S-P-A-T-H, if you just Google Auspath. And that's also got the new guidelines, the informed consent guidelines up there as well, which are super helpful. Um, Penny, maybe you want to speak about some of the, you know, online forums and things? Yeah, I mean, GPs Down Under has got a subgroup for GPTU, for gender-affirming healthcare. It's a very friendly um, Facebook group where we can discuss cases and get help. That's very active, as well as the OSPATH mailing list. Health Pathways has also recently updated their pathways for WA or is in the process of doing so. Um, and there's been a few articles, such as in the MJA, that cover the basics of trans healthcare. There's a position statement from a couple of years ago um, published in the MJA. If you just put position statement, transgender, MJA, that turns up. So there's a few things that, um, they're, they're just really good resources. Really saying what we've just done, that basic outline of, 
you know, going through that sort of informed consent process. Um, another spot is the Equinox guidelines. So if you just Google Equinox guidelines or an Equinox informed consent, then that's a um, clinic in Victoria that's done a lot of work in this space and been really good about sharing resources. And they're all just really solid spots to start for getting a sense of it. And then I, I think as per Penny and my experience, the next step really is to dip your toes in and um, you know, ideally have another colleague somewhere around you or otherwise use that GPDU um, forum, which, you know, I keep an eye on as well as a great forum, or the OzPath listserv um, and use those to ask questions because, you know, it's not, as I always say, it's not rocket science. I wouldn't be able to do it if it was. So, you know, it's stuff you're doing all the time and it's really just tweaking it to this context. Look, fantastic. There's some really, really good tips there. Thank you very, very much. Now, this is the first of a two-part series in transgender medicine, so please stay tuned. I'd also remind people that there is the Good GP email address, which is thegoodgp at gmail.com. And in fact, this podcast came about because one of our listeners emailed us requesting some information on this topic. So thank you very much, Sally and Penny, and we'll speak again soon. Thank you. The Good GP is produced and edited by the team at RACGPWA. If you've got any questions or would like to contact The Good GP, please feel free to email us at thegoodgp at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.